I waited for the rain to come. I knew, sure as clockwork, that it would arrive. It always does at the same time. I've made the same joke for most of my life. Three o'clock is coming, and the rain will soon follow. Nearly every episode of this season so far, every location I visited for the show, was quickly followed by rain. The day I went looking for the first swimming pool in Florida, I walked toward the abandoned pool just as a shelf cloud drifted over and rain followed on my drive home. When I spent the night in the Kissimmee Prairie, we spent all afternoon anticipating the possibility of our campsite being washed out, only for five minutes of rain to sweep through and a clear night to follow. Even when I was leaving the Coral Rescue Project in Orlando a few weeks ago, I left the lab just as a storm rolled into Orlando. I went kayaking, a storm rolled in. I went to the beach, a storm rolled in. I sat here writing this script for this episode and you know what happened? A storm rolled in. It's an inevitable element of summer in Florida. The sun will rise and a storm will follow. I love storm watching. You spend enough time staring up at clouds drifting by, watching the horizon as the dark clouds build up, you start to become an armchair meteorologist. I have sat many hours on the beach watching clouds gather and boldly saying, that'll blow over, it's too far south, it might just be a drizzle, it might rain a few minutes, etc. I always feel like I know what I'm talking about. I don't know anything. And yet, when I get it right, I feel like I have the wisdom of the ages, like I've got the power of an old man sitting on the porch with an iced tea, his eyes watching the clouds, knowing the direction of every gust of wind, but I don't. I am mostly making it up. But storms are unpredictable, even in our modern world. Imagine a century ago, the kind of technology, the kind of science we had available to us, especially in comparison to today. How could you watch something as massive as a hurricane heading straight your way? How could you predict it? How could you know the impact it was going to have when it made landfall? Well, in 1935, we had very little technology that resembles today's technology, but we still use many techniques that we used back then. But 87 years ago this week, a small, dense beast of a hurricane drifted from the Atlantic Ocean straight towards Florida and left chaos in its wake. Today, I'd like to tell you about some of the things that happened in that hurricane and some of the people that we lost. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is our summer finale, and we're talking about the Labor Day hurricane, a terrifying, unpredictable storm that hit the coast of Florida in 1935 that left so many communities and projects and towns devastated in its wake. We talked about the Great Freeze of 1895 at the beginning of this year, an event that reshaped Florida forever. The Labor Day hurricane reminds me a bit of that, a force of nature beyond our understanding. It all began 87 years ago, right about now. Before we get into it, I want to tell you about a concept I learned about in the process of researching this story. I'm, I'm obsessed with this concept, and it's one that was kind of drifting in my mind, an area of science called paleotempestology. Paleotempestology. Great word. I know. Well, it's classified as the study of historical tropical cyclones and the impact that that has on geology and climate over the succeeding history. It's a very complex form of science based on research that takes in so many geological factors, so many studies of soil and fossils and groundwater and movement of water and all things like that. It's a very rich and complex field. I find it very, very interesting. I just wanted to tell you about it because sometimes we do kind of some paleotempestology 
technology on this show. We talk a lot about how the weather has impact over generations, centuries, millennia. We've talked about it, talking about trees, talking about animals, talking about bodies of water, and, and this episode isn't really paleotempestology. We're not talking about geology or the rivers and topographical maps and things like that. We're just talking about history, but the history of storms is something that is a lot to unpack and has a lot of interconnecting webs. We have talked about hurricanes on this show. Hurricane Michael back in 2018 and Hurricane Andrew, which happened in 1992, which just had its 30th anniversary last week. Those are two very important, very impacting hurricanes hurricanes. And there's a few big Florida hurricanes that we've never talked about. Some that I've lived through and some that are older than even generations alive today. There are some that just have so many ominous stories to them, so many dark histories that it feels terrifying to even talk about them. The impact that they had, the uncontrollable nature of them, it's something that... It's something that makes us as humans feel quite small, or at least makes me feel very small. I'm going to tell you today about one such hurricane, the Labor Day hurricane of 1935. It's not quite paleotempestology, but it's close enough. It is a history of a storm. There's a document from that area of expertise, meteorology from the past. It was preserved on the web archive. It is titled The Hurricane of August 31st to September 6th, 1935. Its author is named W.F. McDonald. According to McDonald, the storm began in the last few days of August somewhere near the Turk Islands, currently known as the Turks and Caicos Islands. It's in a straight southeastern line from the southern tip of Florida. That is where the Turk Islands reside. McDonald tracks the hurricane's path around Florida up through the southern U.S. and out back into the ocean up to Greenland, where it eventually died on September 10th. McDonald refers to the hurricane as, quote, the identity of the disturbance, end quote. A little creepy, if I say so myself. But here's the thing about hurricanes. Even now, sometimes even the biggest ones start inconsequential. In fact, Florida hadn't faced a lot of landfall hurricanes in some time. Ironically, an article published in the Orlando Sentinel on August 29th, 1935, just as the hurricane was forming in the sea, described the rarity of hurricane strikes on Florida's coasts. An individual whose name is just listed as Nash, I have no idea who that was outside of this article, but Nash visited this Rotary Club to discuss hurricanes. Nash had studied weather and wind, and they said, quote, due to Florida's high atmospheric pressure most of the time, hurricanes rarely came Came even close to the state, although the violence of their outer stratas had struck with considerable force. End quote. Nash's presentation would prove to be somewhat false within just a few days, though it was true there weren't a lot of hurricanes striking Florida's coasts. Right then, a hurricane was forming that would strike Florida's coasts to massive consequences. A quick diversion, real quick. I, I just have to tell you this. I, I, it's, it's, it's the kinds of things you discover when you read old newspapers. There's an article right below that article about Nash talking about hurricanes that is in the Orlando Sentinel paper that I am reading from. And the headline of this little article is Short Skirts Cheered. Okay? The entire article, the entire snippet reads as followed. Quote, 1,500 jewelers in convention Wednesday cheered a prediction that women's skirts will be shorter this fall. Short skirts will create a demand for chain anklets and jeweled garter buckles, they believe. End quote. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, just, I just had to tell you that. I found it so strange. Anyway, 
At the end of the month, on August 31st, the U.S. Weather Bureau put out a storm advisory. It was published in newspapers across the state in late editions. The Bureau described the storm as, quote, of smaller diameter and considerable intensity, end quote. This thing was dense. In the Fort Lauderdale News, they added that the storm appears to be 650 miles off of Miami, far but closer than comfort. By the next day, it was, quote, at least 350 miles east-southeast of Miami, end quote. It didn't have hurricane winds yet, and they weren't sure if it was, in fact, heading for Florida. All reports the following day in papers across the state come across as, like, kind of tepid in their concerns. It could rain, it could get windy, it could be a hurricane, but Mr. McDonald's report from after the hurricane shows that as night approached on September 2nd, things were starting to get concerning. People weren't really taking it seriously, unfortunately, until September 2nd. A chronological report from an observer on Long Key named J.E. Duane recounts the hours as the storm grows closer. J.E. Duane was a, quote, cooperative observer for the Weather Bureau and in charge of a fishing camp on Long Key, end quote. Long Key is about halfway through the Keys, essentially dead center between Key Largo and Key West. Duane tracked each hour as things got more and more dire, and here is what Duane saw on Long Key as the hurricane approached. Before we dive in, let's talk about barometers. A barometer measures atmospheric pressure. Air has weight to it, as impossible as that may be to comprehend. According to the National Geographic, air, quote, presses against everything it touches as gravity pulls it to Earth. Barometers measure their pressure. End quote. So when a barometer begins to drop, that means that a low pressure system is being detected. If you've spent time watching the news, watching hurricanes come in, you've heard a lot of conversation about what a low pressure system is. Low pressure systems usually precede rain and storms. An increase in pressure means a decrease in storms, quote, clearing the skies and bringing in cool, dry air, end quote. So when there's more low pressure in the air, there's more storms. Got it? So a barometer tracks low or high pressure, and if a barometer is detecting low air pressure, that means that a storm is likely on the way. But a barometer in 1935 was likely what was called an aneroid barometer, a circular metal meter with a circle of measurements on it that takes in air and has mechanisms that respond to that pressure in the air that it takes in. This then tells the reader what the pressure is outside and it tracks it. And though the report I'm reading doesn't exactly say what kind of barometer it is, all the 1930s antique barometers that I can find seem to be an aneroid barometer, so sort of a circular disc that can take in air and give out a reading, kind of like a clock, but it measures pressure rather than time. That is what our friend J.E. Duane had on Long Key that day. So let's pick up with J.E. Duane. At 2 p.m. on September 2nd, Duane said the barometer began to fall and the waves were picking up. Rain began to pick up as well, and by 5 p.m., the winds were blasting north at hurricane speed. The barometer was falling rapidly. A low-pressure system was coming in. At 6.45 p.m., quote, a beam 6 by 8 inches, about 18 feet long, was blown from the north side of camp, about 300 yards through Observer's house, wrecking it and nearly striking three persons, end quote. A beam struck Duane's house, and he kept recording. 
At 9 p.m., Duane wrote, quote, no signs of storm letting up, barometer still falling very fast, end quote. 20 minutes later, he wrote that the storm was overhead. He and the people on the island ran for, quote, the last and only cottage that I think can and will stand the blow due to arrive shortly. There were 20 people hiding from the other edge of the storm as the eye passed overhead, revealing, quote, stars shining brightly and a very light breeze continued, end quote. In the lull, as the storm approached on the other side, Duane went to the edge of the island to peer out at the sea and examine the far wall of the hurricane. He wrote, quote, I put my flashlight out on sea and could see walls of water which seemed many feet high. I had to race fast to regain entrance of cottage, but water caught me waist deep, although Ryder was only about 60 feet from doorway of cottage. Water lifted cottage from its foundations, and it floated, end quote. Just under an hour later at 10.15, Duane wrote, quote, I glanced at barometer which read 26.98 inches, dropped it in water, and was blown outside into sea. Got hung up in broken fronds of coconut tree and hung on for dear life. I was then struck by some object and knocked unconscious, end quote. In the middle of the night at 2 in the morning, Duane woke up in a tree 20 feet up. The storm had passed, the flood had dissipated, and the cottage was safely on the island and miraculously, everyone was safe, including Duane. As the storm left the keys, they watched, quote-unquote, terrific lightning flashes. Sunrise would soon follow, but the people of Long Key had survived the night. To summarize that sequence of events briefly, J.E. Duane was journaling and tracking the storm. The ocean rose, destroyed the room he was in, forced him to enter another building that soon began to drift in the surf until he lost his barometer, he was thrown into a tree, and he was knocked unconscious, where he eventually woke up in that tree hours later. Oh my god. The sheer force of nature that was the Labor Day hurricane is, is hard to imagine. There's a reason it's called the most powerful storm to ever strike the United States, but that was just the beginning of what people around Florida would face as the hurricane kept blazing. It does not get prettier from here. If you think buildings and people drifting from their initial location is unbelievable, imagine what happened to boats. Quote, the Danish motor ship Lise Maersk was carried over Alligator Reef and grounded nearly four miles beyond. End quote. Nobody died in that wreck, but the ship's engine room totally flooded. Another ship, a steamship named Dixie, was carried onto French Reef. A tanker was lost in the storm and thrown, quote, 25 miles northeastward of her original position. End quote. The storm surges on the ocean were so massive. One report says that the storm surge reached up to 20 feet tall. That's essentially the size of a building. No wonder boats were just lifted up and carried away. They didn't stand a chance. Luckily, from all the reports I read, most people on boats survived. The structures of their vessels carried them to safety, even if the vessels themselves did not survive the night. High above the boats, however, as the storm was blazing toward Florida, a man named Leonard J. Povey was making history. Povey might be pronounced Povey, P-O-V-E-Y. I might stick with Povey. That sounds a little better. But Leonard was a pilot, a man with an outstanding and unique career. Here's a quick summary from Embry-Riddle's Alumni Magazine. Quote, Leonard J. Povey was a legendary air circus performer, occasional bootlegger, 
aerobatic innovator, honorary captain in the Cuban Air Force, end quote, as well as serving as an executive for Embry-Riddle in his career. But in 1935, he was training to join the Cuban Air Force in Havana. He apparently got hired for the gig after a Cuban official saw him, quote, stunt flying over Biscayne Bay, end quote. Well, in the first days of September, as the Labor Day hurricane approached the southern edge of Florida, Povey was in Cuba. The same warning that came to Florida came to Havana. But where was the storm going? Well, Povey offered to get up in the sky and take a look. His plane was a Curtis Hawk II, a propeller plane, kind of like a classic-looking plane for the 1930s. Povey took it into the Straits of Florida and looked north at the beast striking the Sunshine State. He flew around the hurricane, looked down at the cone shape in the center, and observed the thrashing seas below. This thing was not massive, it was actually pretty small for a hurricane, but the density of it and the force it was generating was way worse than anyone was anticipating. Povey created a detailed report and sent it back to Cuba, who sent it along to the Florida Keys, warning them of what Povey saw. In that moment, Povey became the first hurricane watcher, a profession that would become official in the 40s, but the message that Povey sent did not come in soon enough. Quote, the observatory dispatched a warning to the Keys, but the news came too late for an effective evacuation, end quote. The death toll on the Florida Keys would rise into the hundreds over the next few days as the Labor Day hurricane lingered in Florida. And in one spot in particular, a horrible tragedy occurred. One particular group faced a massive loss. If you drive on the road that takes you south to Key West, you'll see many things. Roadside attractions, beautiful homes, smaller keys in the distance, even tiny key deer that ramble up to your car. But when I drove down there in 2019 looking to tell the story of Henry Flagler, I was looking for something specific on the way. I've long been interested in the Works Progress Administration that built and designed so many memorials during its existence in the 30s. I'd heard of a memorial that I'd always wanted to see. And three years ago, I pulled my car over to get a look. I haven't been back to the Keys since, but when I do go, I know I'll stop to see this memorial again, and probably I will do that every time I pass by. See, this memorial at mile marker 81 on Key Largo is a simple memorial dedicated on November 14th, 1937, just over two years after the hurricane. There is a crypt in that memorial where some remains have been buried within. One source says, quote, perhaps 300 people are buried here, end quote. There are no names on the memorial, only a dedication on a plaque made of bronze. It reads, quote, dedicated to the memory of the civilians and war veterans whose lives were lost in the hurricane of September 2nd, 1935, end quote. According to the National Geographic, quote, at least 250 luckless World War I vets died caught in the path of the most intense hurricane that has ever struck the United States, end quote. It was a conflation of circumstances that brought them to the Florida Keys in the first place. One detail I haven't mentioned yet. All of this was happening during the Great Depression, which if you listen to this show, if you know how much I've talked about the Great Depression, it hit Florida earlier and in more severe ways than other states in the country. Key West in particular had actually declared bankruptcy during the Great Depression. 
but with the New Deal, which was FDR's plan to revitalize the economy, government spending was being kicked toward plans that could put a needed shot in the arm of our country's flagging economy. Key West needed tourism if they were to survive, and that meant easier ways to get people down there. If a road was in place rather than a train line, people could make it to the Keys and enjoy the fresh air of that distant island. Many people in the country were looking for work, especially veterans of World War I, called at that time the Great War. By the early 1930s, veterans had begun gathering in Washington, D.C. to protest the lack of bonuses that they had been promised. The National Park Service says that, quote, some estimates putting the total number above 40,000, end quote. That's how many people were protesting. They built a camp and made their voices heard. They called themselves the Bonus Expeditionary Forces. But the government came down on them, throwing them out of town with force. They were, quote, driven off by the cavalry with tanks and tear gas, end quote. The shanties that the veterans were living in were burned. Quote, DC's hospitals were overwhelmed with the wounded, end quote. The government let the veterans down, drove them out of the city, and left them high and dry just as the depression was looming on the horizon. Some suspect that this action actually cost President Herbert Hoover dearly and allowed Franklin Delano Roosevelt to become president in 1932. FDR saw an opportunity. They needed laborers, the veterans needed work, and the solution lay ahead of them. Bring the veterans to the Keys to build the road and each problem was solved. The act of nature that was the Labor Day hurricane could not be predicted. Most of what follows in the rest of this episode is documented in an article in the National Geographic titled, quote, The True Story of the Most Intense Hurricane You've Never Heard Of, end quote, by Willie Dry. Willie Dry published a book called Storm of the Century, The Labor Day Hurricane of 1935. I'll include a link to that article and that book. It is very detailed and a huge resource for this episode. It is marvelously written. Those in charge of this project had other problems on their minds when the veterans made it down to the Keys to get to work. The veterans were drinking and partying, and it upset the quiet hamlets along the islands. Most of these guys had what we called at the time shell shock, which we now know today is PTSD. So they had problems that had not been properly taken care of, and they were already struggling for extra cash, and now they were working out in unfamiliar territories. I cannot imagine how difficult this era was for these men. Keeping them in check, their managers trying to keep them supervised, was proving a very difficult challenge. Crime would follow the parties, and hurricanes were the last thing on anyone's mind. There was, however, a plan for the possibility of a hurricane. It was summer, after all, and hurricanes were a threat when heat rose. The people in charge, quote, discussed sending a special Florida East Coast railway train from Miami to evacuate the vets should a storm come their way, end quote. That railway, of course, was the one built by Flagler's team before he died. But the problem was that railway officials knew it would take some time to get a train ready and down to where the laborers were. A fact that those in charge of the veterans didn't know or didn't understand or didn't communicate. It's clear that nobody in charge of these veterans were prepared to actually get people out safely. Those in charge, notably a man named Ray Sheldon, who had been named supervisor, was none too concerned about the weather advisories that were coming in approaching Labor Day weekend. Quote, he knew the drunken, surly vets would be nearly impossible to handle aboard the train. He wanted to wait until the last possible moment. End quote. The train was finally called by Sheldon's associate, Fred Ghent, on Monday, September 2nd, Labor Day. 
at 2 p.m. Remember our friend J.E. Duane on Long Key? Well, at 2 p.m. on September 2nd, at the same time, he was noticing the rapidly falling barometer and the rising waves on the sea. 2 p.m. is when Fred Ghent called for the train, which meant that that was when the train started getting ready. It would take until 4.25, two and a half hours later, for the train to start moving south. At 5 p.m., that is when J.E. Duane said that hurricane winds were being detected at Long Key. That was when the train started trying to evacuate the veterans. It was far too late. The structures of the camps where the veterans were were already falling apart from the wind and the waves were gathering over the tracks as the train tried to get to them. It was pushing south, but the hurricane was fighting back. A cable snapped at one point and stopped the train movement, costing them precious moments. By 8 p.m., the train finally arrived to Isla Morada to pick up the administrators for the camps, but the train was literally picked up by winds. There's an image in this article of the heavy locomotive, 160 tons, still on the tracks, but nine passenger cars were thrown to the side like toys. Imagine the forces capable of doing that. It is unimaginable. Buildings on Isla Morada were ripped to shreds. Some reports say that that town was leveled. But down where the veterans were staying was chaos. I will spare you the details. Reading the details of what happened to these veterans, how they lost their lives, it made my stomach turn. Over 200 veterans died, 408 people died in the whole of the storm, and half of the total deaths from the storm were veterans brought to camps by the federal government who did not have a plan to properly get them out safely. No one was held accountable. The managers in charge who called the train too late, they survived and they were not held accountable. Parts of the railroad built during Flagler's life 20 years earlier were destroyed. The hurricane died off over Greenland over a week later on September 10th, and over the successive months, the veterans who lost their lives were found, and many of their remains were put inside that crypt that still stands in the Florida Keys, remembering them for what happened. Since I learned of the hurricane when I started making this show, every Labor Day that has come has reminded me of this hurricane. We started honoring Labor Day in the 1880s, a way to honor the labor activism of the 19th century. The holiday was adopted as a federal holiday on June 28, 1894, and growing up, I had no idea what Labor Day even meant. It's a difficult holiday to know how to celebrate, especially when you're a kid and you don't have a job. I'll be off that day, this year. Resting at home, getting some work done for next season, probably watching a storm roll in. But how do you honor Labor Day properly? We all have our own ways, I'm sure. Different ways to respect the workers in our lives, to respect the workers that have come before us. But I know that Labor Day for me, every year for the rest of my life, will be spent thinking of this hurricane. Of the veterans turned laborers who were lost on Labor Day of the first hurricane hunter, of J.E. Duane and his trusty barometer, and of all the people that we have lost in the storm. Mm -hmm.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you were here, and I'm so glad that I got to tell this story to you. It's one that I've always wanted to share, and I felt that now is a good time to do so. With Labor Day here and hurricanes becoming more and more of a concern in our day-to-day lives, it just felt like the proper story to discuss to honor these people who were lost. But don't worry, even though this is the season finale, there is one more episode this season. One more episode and an announcement of sorts? There's going to be two more episodes this week is what I'm saying to you. There's going to be an episode on August 31st, that's Wednesday, and then there will be one more final episode talking about one of my favorite summer phenomena, heat lightning. That'll come out on September 2nd, and that'll be a proper farewell to summer as fall approaches. So, two more episodes, two more wrap-ups for this season, but this is the proper season finale. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means the world to me to know what you enjoy about this show. I will include links in the description to episodes similar to this one, specifically the one about Hurricane Andrew from 2020. It's a great episode, very interesting. And we talked to one of the best journalists in Florida, Craig Pittman. So go give that episode a listen. I will also include links to the resources for this episode because they are extensive and fascinating and I learned so much from them. So you can learn more about the veteran protest in Washington, D.C., the meteorological study of the Labor Day hurricane, and the events that occurred with the veterans in the Keys. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. And you can also send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. All right, that is it for this season, sort of. There's going to be an epilogue on Friday about heat lightning and a farewell to summer and an announcement on Wednesday. You're going to want to tune in. I promise. It's a, it's so it's so exciting. I'm not overhyping it. It is a huge, huge deal. Wednesday, you're going to want to tune in. Anyway, I will see you Wednesday and Friday for two special bonus episodes of this show. But until then, thank you for listening. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and as always, drink more water and have a wonderful end of your summer. Thanks for listening.